Well, the Christian year, the liturgical calendar, includes two cycles. You've probably noticed this. So there's the cycle of Christmas and the cycle of Easter. In Christmas, you've got Advent, Christmas, and Epiphany. In Easter, you've got Lent, Easter, and Pentecost. Now, each of these cycles, as you might notice, begins with a time of preparation or expectation. So that would be Advent for the season of Christmas, and that would be Lent for the season of Easter. It begins with preparation and expectation, and then there is a celebration. There's Christmas, there's Easter Sunday, and after this, we get what's called ordinary time. Ordinary. Now, ordinary, in this case, doesn't mean routine or not special, but it actually refers to ordinal numbers, so first, second, third, fourth, etc. You've got Easter Sunday, and then the second, third, fourth Sundays of Easter. Um, and then you've got the feast day of Epiphany, and the first, second, third Sundays of Epiphany, and so forth. Now here we are, after Pentecost and Trinity Sunday, about to enter into a long season of ordinary, or you could call it measured, measured time. There's actually going to be 24 Sundays in a row that gets us from today all the way to Thanksgiving. 24 Sundays in which we'll walk through Genesis, Exodus, Deuteronomy, Joshua, and Judges even. Now, For many churches that use the lectionary that follow the calendar, this season in the summer, this season of ordinary time, is focused on supporting new disciples. So folks who are baptized either on Uh, Easter Sunday or on Pentecost Sunday, supporting them in their new life in Christ. It's also used to enable congregations to to live out the calling that they may have discerned during the season of Easter or the feast day of Pentecost. Now, my favorite tradition is that this season gives pastors a chance to preach without a tie, Um, goes back to uh, the Apostle Peter in the church at Rome. No, if you have a problem with this dress this summer, take it up with the tradition. I'm just following orders here. Just kidding. (laughs) This morning, though, we'll begin our season of ordinary time in the summer by opening up the book of Genesis. And not looking at the very beginning, we read that last week, but opening up to Genesis 12. And so I invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 12. And we will be reading from the ESV, verses 1 through 9. So Genesis 12, and as you are able, friends, would you stand for the reading of God's Word? Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house, to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was seventy-five years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. 
When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negeb. You may be seated. <clears throat> Genesis 12, 1 through 9 is one of the most pivotal passages in the entirety of Scripture. Now, I know preachers say that about a lot of passages, uh, but you can actually say that truthfully about this one. It describes the departure of Abram from his homeland toward the promised land, the land of Canaan. It describes the faith and obedience of the father of nations, Abraham, that's what his name means, the father of Israel, and as we'll see in the New Testament, the father of all who trust in God. I also think it's a relevant passage for us today as we celebrate our graduates who aren't going from Ur or from Haran, uh, but are going from one life sort of to another, through a doorway into a new chapter. Summer David and Jacob are being summoned away from one life, as it were, toward another. And so I think it's a great passage to begin with for them and for us as a church as we step into this new and long season that is ordinary time this summer. So I'd like to begin uh, by joining in prayer, a little bit longer than usual prayer, not only for this message, but also for this season of the year. So I invite you now to join me briefly in a time of prayer. Father God, thank you so much for letting us journey with you since last Advent as we expectantly awaited the birth of Messiah Jesus. We celebrated that birth with a worship service on Christmas Day. And then celebrating Christ's appearance to the first Gentiles, the Magi, and the Feast of Epiphany. Moving through the wilderness during Lent to Holy Week. And what a holy week it was. Lord, I pray that as we enter into this time of ministry, this time of seeing what you are doing in the world and joining you there, I pray that you would make us sensitive to your spirit, orient us to what is on your heart, what is valuable to you right now, and, and give us the strength and the joy, Lord, to carry out your mission during this season as a church. I pray that you would be with us as we study this pivotal passage together, as we walk through Genesis and Exodus and these iconic books and stories from the history of Israel. We love you and pray, Jesus, that you would be present with us and to us this morning. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. So a few months ago now, it was in March, um, I had the privilege of attending the Society of Biblical Literature's virtual global meeting. It's the first time they've done it. Um, it's an annual society of students, scholars, pastors who are interested in all things Bible theology. Um, and it's the first time they had a, 
a virtual meeting where folks from all over the world were gathered together at the same time. And so what was striking is I'd be in a session with, say, 12 to 15 others, and nearly every continent on earth was represented. I was looking out for some penguins to see if Antarctica would also be represented. Didn't see any. Nearly every continent on earth in the same room at once discussing the Bible and theology. It was amazing. And there was one session in particular where there was a retired scholar from India, and you could see in his background, the Zoom background, that his context, his house, it was different from mine. And he was discussing the Gospel of Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount, and he told a story stemming from his context in India. His work was on interpersonal dependence in the Jesus movement, the early Jesus movement. And to illustrate this, he told a story about a roof repair that was needed in his village. So in India, where he lived, the houses are relatively close. Some of them are connected. And so this man, his roof, caved in. Not the whole thing, but just part of it, enough to warrant some alarm. And the man didn't go on the internet, onto Angie's List, looking for contractors. He didn't drive to a nearby town and look for a storefront business to help him out with this sort of thing. It says he walked outside... This is what the presenter said. He walked outside in his neighborhood. His neighbors are milling about, living, working, and he describes quite loudly what has happened with his roof. He's not angry, yelling about it, but he's just making it known. No Google search, no phone call even. And the presenter said that within a matter of hours, the man's roof was repaired. There was no mention of money cost at all. Now, a story like this is probably hard for us in the modern West to grasp because we're used to following certain procedures when we have a problem like this. We're used to looking up the name of a contractor, a person, a company, and they come and do the work, and they aren't relatives, they're not close friends necessarily, and we pay them liquid currency, we pay them money, and they go on their way. But these kinds of economies, these neighborhood communal economies, where the needs of the individual are met by the the neighborhood, the community, they do still exist in the world. You can see them in non-Western places, not always, but in places like India. You can see them in America, perhaps in Amish or more agrarian communities, And even in Christianity, we're seeing intentional monastic communities living together, meeting each other's needs. And friends, such a context is exactly the sort of context in which Abram lived. It says, go, therefore, from your country, your kindred, your father's house, to a land that I will show you. Go, in other words, from your stable support system your reliable safety net, your source of identity in life to something utterly and completely unknown. In the ancient Near East, which is exactly where Abram is from, country, kindred, and household serve the same functions as a plurality of social programs today. So you think of food, child care, shelter, medicine, transportation, education, insurance, burial, stuff like that. 
In this context, those things were carried out by one's country, kindred, household. And God commands Abram to go. He says, go from the network you've relied upon all your life. Go from the household that has nourished you. Go from the country that gives you identity, character, legacy. Go to a future that is unknown. This is what God is asking Abram to do in Genesis 12. And this is precisely what God is asking you to do right now. So without further ado, friends, let's jump into the text for this morning and see what God has to say to us through it. Genesis 12. To set it in its context, since we haven't really been in the book of Genesis, um, if you flip back a few chapters, you don't have to, but you might remember the story of Noah's Ark. So Genesis chapter 9. And this in biblical history is a kind of new beginning for humanity. After this, we have lists upon lists of nations that descended from Noah and his sons. And then in there, you get the story of Babel, the Tower of Babel in chapter 11. After this, at the end of chapter 11, we get a long list of descendants of Shem, one of Noah's sons named Shem. That's where the word Semite or Semitic comes from, Shem. And so we have a long list of descendants of Shem, something common in the book of Genesis. And so eight generations from Shem. So it would have been his great, 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 great grandson was a man by the name of Terah, which is Abram's father, Terah. Now in Genesis eleven twenty-seven to 31, the passage right before ours in chapter 12, it says these are the generations of Terah. This is a common structuring device in Genesis called the Toledote. It basically gives a zoomed-out perspective of the descendants, the ages, the location, a kind of summary of a person's household, typically the patriarch, and it's doing that with Terah. These are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered three sons, it says, Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot, Lot, the grandson of Terah. Haran, however, died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred, that's Ur of the Chaldeans. And the other two sons, Abram and Nahor, they took wives. If you've read Genesis, you know Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah. And Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, his grandson, and they went forth from Ur, all the way in Mesopotamia, they went forth to the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran at the tippity top, it says they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Only after all that do we get Genesis 12.1. But friends, what happens in Genesis 12 does not happen chronologically after what I just read in Genesis 11. This is important to understand. In Genesis 11, it provides a zoomed-out summary of Terah and his descendants and his lifespan, saying when he, he died and how many descendants and sons he had and the, the basic contour of his story. And then in chapter 12, it picks a point within that summary and it zooms in on it. We learn that Abram is 75 years old when he leaves Haran here in chapter 12. And so if he's 75, that means Terah was 145. Still very much alive. He had 60 years to go. 
So it is not as though Abram waits until his father is dead, and Genesis 12 comes after Genesis 11. This is zooming in on a point in the story. I hope we see that. In chapter 12, verse 1, it says the famous command from God, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Now, like I said, they, they've left Ur, so this command is given to Abram and his family when they're in Haran, which is kind of poised on the edge, the northern border of Canaan. But it's important to note that Terah is still very much alive because God is, is commanding Abram to leave his father, his support system, while he is still alive. You could think of Jesus calling the disciples and in a number of instances, some say, wait, 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 I have to bury my father first. Just wait. And Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead and so forth. This is connected here. Abram is to consciously loosen himself from the support system of his father. Once Terah died, Abram becomes, really the firstborn would become the, the new patriarch. And so it would be natural to transition. But Terah is still alive, friends. His support system, his source of identity, Abram is supposed to leave and go into the unknown future that this new God, Yahweh, a God that was not listed among the many gods in Mesopotamia, that this new God would write for him. Friends, how would you feel if you were Abram in this situation? Imagine the difficulty in leaving Terah a leader, a mentor, a father who had supported and established Abraham from the very beginning. Well, it seems to motivate obedience in verse 2. God gives Abram a series of promises. He says, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. In other words, everything he's giving up in leaving Terah God seems to promise, and more. Beyond the support of a father, household, kindred, God promises to make Abram a nation. Really, a father of nations. In verse 3, we continue to read part of the promise, the list of promises. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This connects strikingly to uh, Jesus' commissioning of the, the 72 disciples in the Gospels, where he describes uh, how they might be treated and what to do if they're treated in certain ways. But the final promise here in Genesis is quite striking. It says, In you, Abram, all the families of the earth will be blessed. The scope of the language here matches the Great Commission. Make disciples of all nations, bear witness to the ends of the earth. And early Christian writers, the Apostle Paul especially, make much of this verse, saying that from Abram would come the Messiah, Jesus Christ, in and through whom all the families of the earth would be blessed with eternal salvation. In verse 4, it says that Abram went. 
He's called to leave his living father, to loosen himself from these support systems, to leave with little to go on but God's gradual illumination of his path. And he goes. He goes. Friends, would you go? Would you? Thanks be to God that Abram is not us. (laughs) He went. And from his going came the establishment of Israel, the writing of the Hebrew Scriptures, the feasts and festivals we know, and the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who would save the world. Verse 5, Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people they'd acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. Moving on to verse 6, I guess the end of 5 and beginning of 6. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram doesn't dig a well, he doesn't make a treaty, he doesn't plow the land, he worships. He passed through the land to the place, the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. In this period before established religion, you could say, in Israel, there were certain places in nature that were devoted to uh, connecting with the divine. And these were some such places, Shechem, the Oak of Moreh. And Abram is learning about this new God, the God that would become the God of Israel, Yahweh, who is revealing himself. And so the first thing he does in this new country is worship this new God. We get a curious detail here, the end of verse 6. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Now, no detail is to be ignored in Hebrew narrative, especially not one like this. Uh, Abram was being guided toward a land that was already occupied, and not by the friendliest of folks. Uh, You'll read in the Old Testament descriptions of the Canaanites, giants, mighty warriors, ruthless persons. And so the obedience, the faith of Abram here is all the more impressive or foolish. You can make your choice. In verse 7, you read that the Lord appeared to Abram as he builds altars and worships him and, and says this, to your offspring, I will give this land. Now, I skipped over it before, but at the end of chapter 11, it says Abram and Nahor took wives. Abram's wife is Sarai, and Nahor's wife is Milcah. Now, Sarai was, it says, barren. She had no child. But here it says, to your offspring I will give this land. This is a little complicated, but like I said, in Genesis 11, we get a zoomed-out narrator's perspective. And in literature, the narrator knows, knows everything. The narrator is giving you all the details to go on. So the narrator knows that Sarai is barren. The narrator says this in chapter 11. But Abram, the character, might not. We are privileged with information that sometimes the characters don't know. But if he's 75... And we learn that Sarai is 65, and they likely didn't have the kinds of birth control that we have today. It's likely that the characters themselves knew that Sarai couldn't have children. Yet, yet, God still says, to your offspring, 
I will give this land. Moving on to verse 8, he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel. He keeps going. He pitched his tent. He's a nomad, a traveler at this point. And between Bethel and Ai, he builds another altar to the Lord and calls upon the name of the Lord. As he moves through the land of Canaan, north to south, and awaits further guidance, further revelation from God, he builds altars and worships. Do we do this? As we await new light from God, as we make decisions in life, as we move forward into the unknown, do we punctuate such seasons with worship? It seems that worship is the the fuel, almost, which sustains Abram on his way. He only has enough light to take a few steps, and when he runs out of light, he worships. Well, the text ends with a classic cliffhanger in verse 9, and Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negeb in the south. In but nine verses, we see the family of Abram travel from Haran in the north, scouting, surveying the land that God would give, going all the way down to Negeb in the south. It's like a land survey here. What a way to start ordinary time, right? Well, friends, today in our modern moment, we're tempted, I think, to depend on a host of things to provide us with X, Y, and Z, to provide us with fulfillment, identity, legacy, meaning, etc. Like I said before, food, shelter, repairs, child care, clothing, insurance, transportation. These were once the provision of the family, and the household, the community. Today, money often does that kind of work for us. And it leads us sometimes to depend upon it to an unhealthy degree, either on money or on the sorts of services that we're using. In this passage, God calls Abram it seems, away from one dependence toward dependence on Him alone. And perhaps God is calling us to the same thing. Do you ever find yourself depending on money or earthly services to provide for your deepest needs? What might it look like for you For us to leave country, kindred, household, and to trust God more wholly with our lives. I believe that God wants us to depend upon Him, but to depend upon Him via His church, His kingdom, His new family that He's given us. I'm not saying that everything done by daycare centers and hospitals and insurance companies can and should be done by the church. No way. What I am saying, though, is that like the roof repair, the story in the Indian village, many of our needs, I think, can be met right here, right now. When you have a need, let me ask it this way, any need whatsoever that you need fulfilled soon, where does your mind go first? Does it go to specialists, companies, and what money can 
provide, organizations, programs, etc. Where does the church fall on your mental list of contacts when you find yourself in need? I think God is calling us as we enter into this new season, He's calling us to abandon former sources of support and to rely upon Him through the new family, the new village He's given us. As we set out then on a new and long journey of the church's year, let us loosen our dependence on former support systems. And when faced with a need, any need whatsoever, let's at least think of God and His church. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for calling Abram away from a life of dependence on one thing toward a life of dependence on You. And Lord, You made him into a source of blessing For others, a source of blessing for the world. We are always a dependent people. We're not leaving dependence for independence, Lord, but what we depend upon is vital. It's important. And so, Lord, as we move forward in this season of the year, this long stretch of measured time, I pray that we would be the church, that we would depend upon each other, that we would trust in you to provide our needs through one another, Lord. Your church is called the body of Christ for a reason. Let us be the hands and feet of Jesus for each other and for the world. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.